IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm your host and managing editor of Insurance Business, Paul Lucas, and today is one of those editions of the podcast I have to admit I'm particularly looking forward to uh, because it offers me a chance to learn so much. That's because I'm talking to a man who not only has more than 30 years' experience under his belt in the insurance industry, but one who is also an author, a TED presenter, and consultant consultant and one who can help us all boost our sales approach with the principles of persuasion. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People, Brian Ahern. Uh, Brian, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you for having me on, Paul. I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, So, Brian, I'm sure everyone is itching to get some sales tips from you. Um, But before we get to that, let's look a little bit at your career. Um, You actually started out as a personal lines and then commercial lines underwriter with Travelers. Uh, What led you into the insurance industry? Well, most people, at least here in the States, don't grow up deciding to get into insurance. It's not one of those fields that's uh, attracting lots of people from the get-go. And I fell into insurance literally because of a girl. I was in college. I had accepted a job in another industry. The last week of school, I got a letter from the travelers, almost threw it away, didn't know anything about insurance, but I thought, you know what, I'm dating this girl and and my family's still in Columbus, Ohio, and my friends, and I should probably go to this interview. Went to the interview, liked what I heard, uh, accepted the job, and then the irony, Paul, was the very first day on the job with the travelers, I met my wife of now 32 years, well, that, that is definitely a unique story. I'll be honest, I think it's something that's transatlantic in terms of falling into the insurance industry, but not necessarily uh, falling in love in the insurance industry. <laughs> yeah, well, it's worked out well. I got some great training, got a career and, and met my wife. So I'm very thankful to the travelers. Yeah. So did you enjoy being on the underwriting side? I did. It appealed to my analytical nature. And like a lot of people who go into underwriting, I really didn't want to get into sales. Uh, At that time, I'll be honest, I thought sales was a bunch of BS and underwriting was very logic based. I'm an analytical person by nature. And so I really enjoyed the risk analyzation and what I was learning. So if uh, sales was a, a bunch of BS, as you put it, uh, but from, the, from there, you, you moved obviously to state auto. And I, I think you spent around 30 years with the firm. Um, but a few years into your career there, you did make that switch from senior commercial lines underwriter to sales specialist. Mm-hmm. So what led you down that BS route? Well, there was a a unique opportunity at the time in the sales department, and it really, I wasn't involved with sales training to begin with. It was more metrics analyzation and uh, starting to format sales reports way back in the day when Microsoft products were new and you could really start doing things outside of the traditional IT. And so I got into the sales metrics side and began with the reporting. And then an individual joined the organization and kind of brought me along and said, you know, help me with some of this sales training. And I learned more in that year with John than I had learned in my first 10 years in the business. And I really started to see that how you talk to people could make a big difference between their willingness to say yes and no. And uh, that led me down into the sales training path. Uh, and it was during this time as well, wasn't it, during your time with State Auto that you sort of moved from not just 
actually making sales, but actually consulting about sales as well. So how did you sort of learn so much that you were able to, to move into that role? Well, I, I learned a tremendous amount from uh, individual John, John Petrucci, who uh, ironically then ended up being my boss for quite some time. But I learned a lot from him. And then I bumped into Robert Cialdini's material completely by chance. Somebody who had been in our department came down one day and had a videotape of Robert Cialdini. He'd been presenting at Stanford University. And she said to John and I, I think you guys will really like this. I watched the video and the light bulb came on. I thought, holy cow, this psychology that he's talking about, it explains why certain sales approaches work and why certain ones don't. It's the underpinning of selling. So for that reason, I was drawn to his material. I love the fact that it was based on research. So I mentioned earlier that I was an analytical person and seeing this research gave me confidence when I would go out and talk about it that what I was sharing really could make a difference if people used it ethically and correctly. And then the third thing that really appealed was the word ethics. He was very clear about non-manipulative ways to move people to action. And that appealed to the moral part of me. And so for those three reasons, I was so intrigued by his work and began to dive in and learn as much as I could and, and utilize it in the sales training. And for, for those who might not be too familiar with the, the Robert Cialdini name, um, can you just give us a little bit of background about him? Sure. Robert Cialdini is the most cited living social psychologist in the world on the topic of the science of influence. Um, he taught for more than three decades at Arizona State University, where he also conducted a lot of research and experiments. And what really set Cialdini apart from other social psychologists at the time was he understood that if you really want to know what makes people successful, you can't limit it to controlled research in a university setting. So what he did was he, he took a hiatus for nearly three years from his teaching position. This would have been, I believe, in the late 70s or early 80s. And he went out into the, quote, real world to get jobs because he wanted to, one, observe people who were really good at getting others to say yes. And two, he wanted to learn from their training programs. And after three years in a various roles, he stepped back and he took what he understood about social psychology and he looked at everything and he's pretty much said, you know, of all the things I've learned, you can put them into six categories that he coined the terms, the principles of persuasion or principles of influence, that almost everything he learned could fall into these six categories. And what was interesting about that, Paul, is he really took a very broad and complicated topic and made it understandable. People could get their minds around these six concepts that were universal to all human beings. And that was the basis of his book, Influence, Science and Practice, which has sold some five million copies now. And I believe that you're one of only 20 people in the world that have been personally trained uh, and certified by Cialdini. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight into how that came about, how you came to be one of only 20? Yeah, th this was fate, I guess, or I, I would encourage people, you know, sometimes you don't know in the moment how significant that moment will be in your life. But for me, that significant moment was one day, one of Stanford's marketing flyers came across my desk. After I had seen Cialdini's video, I signed up for some of their marketing and they had a lot of tremendous resources. So one day this marketing flyer comes across my desk and as I'm flipping the pages, 
boom, there's Robert Cialdini's picture. And above it, in big, bold letters, it says bestseller, referring to the video that I had seen. And then right underneath it, in bold letters, it said, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And that really took me back. I thought, you know, who, what copyright person would think that advertising a video about manipulation would be good for sales? And it wasn't about manipulation anyway. So that moral part of me felt compelled to address it. And so I emailed Stanford and I basically said this, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated. And I don't know anybody who's looking to become a good manipulator. The word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later, my phone rang at work and it was a representative from Robert Cialdini's organization, Influence at Work. And she called and she said, I'm, I'm calling to personally thank you on behalf of Dr. Cialdini. You sent an email to Stanford and because of that email, they're changing the marketing of all of our materials. And we wanted to reach out and say thank you. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. And so we had this nice conversation. And by the end, she said, you know, if your company is ever looking for a guest speaker, Dr. Cialdini travels the world and speaks about this. And I said, I sit next to the woman who plans our events and books our speakers. Would you like to talk with her? And as fate would have it, it was the summer of 2004. He was in Columbus, Ohio, several times to address the insurance agents that represented us. And it was during that time that I went out to Arizona with my boss. My boss, John, and I, we went through the two-day workshop called The Principles of Persuasion. And then I told John, I said, I really should get certified to teach this because we could use this material internally to help our managers do a better job influencing and leading, but we could also morph it into a sales training opportunity for our agents. And I got the green light three years later. I'm a pretty persistent person. But three years later, I went back to Arizona and in early 2008 was went through the certification process with Dr. Cialdini and uh, have been training on his material ever since. So obviously, I don't expect you to give everything away, but can you give us a little bit of insight into those principles of persuasion? Sure. So there are six principles that he details in the book, Influence, Science and Practice. Um, and your listeners are going to completely understand everything that I say, because I'm going to describe human behavior and they're all human beings. So they're either going to think, oh, I do that. And that's why people respond positively to me. Or they might think, oh, that's what that salesperson did or said to get me to buy. So they're going to recognize either how they've used them or how they've been used to get them to take action. But the, the first principle that we talk about is called reciprocity. And that's that natural obligation we feel to give back to people who first give to us. Uh, social psychologists agree all human societies raise their people in the way of reciprocity. And, and Paul, with many of these principles, if you think about it, over the course of human existence, they have helped us survive and thrive. For example, if, if we went back 10,000 years and I did something that genuinely helped you, you would probably want to do something to help me and we're both better off. But if you wouldn't help me again, I probably would never help you and then you're not as well off. So people just intuitively started to recognize, oh, that person did something and it helped me. I should probably do something to help them. And all of a sudden we forming, we're forming relationship. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. But if if I can, I, I I guess the there might be on the on the flip side of that, there might be some people who say, well, isn't that almost unethical in in the, in the sense that if you are doing something just because maybe in the back of your mind you're thinking this person might do something back for me, isn't that a little bit unethical? Well, not necessarily. When we'll take a step back and talk about what does it mean to be an ethical persuader. When we talk about being ethical, there are three things that are a requirement. First is truthfulness. I tell the truth and I don't hide the truth, right? So when I say I don't hide the truth, if you are going to purchase my home and there's a crack in my basement, if I have a rug over that and I don't tell you about it and you buy the house, you move the rug and you go, hey, there's a crack in the basement, it's not defensible for me to say, well, Paul, you didn't ask, right? So we, we tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. But we also learn that by being truthful and how we are truthful, we can actually gain trust and credibility. And that might actually make the attempt to influence easier. So number one, we tell the truth. Number two, we only use psychology that is natural to the situation. So we don't claim, for example, false scarcity if something's not really scarce or, or rare. We don't claim social proof uh, that lots of people are doing something if they really aren't doing something. So we don't falsely use any of this psychology. We only use what's naturally available. And then the third thing is we look to create situa situations that are, to use Stephen Covey's term, win-win. That what I'm putting out on the table in terms of my request of you, it's not just good for me, but it's also good for you. So I, I like to say, um, good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. So if I'm being truthful and I'm only using psychology that's naturally available and what I'm putting forth to you is also to your benefit, I can feel confident and comfortable that I'm operating in an ethical fashion. D does that help explain that answer? Yeah, I, I think it's something that probably applies very well to the insurance industry as well, because I, I suppose it could be argued, you know, especially when brokers are talking through perhaps risk mitigation techniques with, with their clients and so on, that there's a benefit there to the broker to avoid the claim being made, uh, to the insurer to avoid the claim being made, and but also it's beneficial to the consumer as well by avoiding the situation that would that would prompt an insurance claim. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let me go to the second principle and then we'll circle back. And, and I think you'll see how this ties together. The second principle that we talk about is called the principle of liking. And that simply describes the reality that uh, it's easier for people to say yes to us if they know and like us. OK, um, so if you found out that you really liked me and I asked you to do something, well, of course, it's easier for you to say yes to somebody that you like. We all understand that. But here's the key with that principle, Paul. It's not about me getting you to like me. It's about me coming to like you. And the very same things that will make you like me will also make me like you. <laughs> so in other words, if I find out um, we grew up in the same hometown or we cheer for the same team, or something that we have in common, you'll naturally like me a little more. But I will also like you more. If I can find something to compliment you on, you feel good about that, you like the interaction that we're having, you like me, but more importantly, I come to like you. When I compliment you, I'm thinking more highly of you. And the reason this is so important is when you really begin to sense, hey, Brian likes me, he really likes and cares for me, you become much more open to whatever I might ask because typically friends do right by friends. But the good news is 
because I really have come to like you, I would never manipulate my friends. And I'm willing to bet, Paul, you would never manipulate your friends. And I think your listeners would say, no, I wouldn't manipulate my friends. So the key is really coming to like your clients, the agents you interact with. Um, if you're an agent and you're interacting with underwriters, getting to know and like your underwriters, it's about you coming to like those other people so that you can say from a deep place within, I really want the best for you. That's where reciprocity changes because it no longer is me doing something to get you to do something for me, Paul. It's me doing something for you because I genuinely want to help you. And because we form that relationship and you know that, you are much more open to whenever I might ask you for something in return or some help. And we're both better off because of this. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. So I guess if we can just look at it from, from the insurance angle, just from that element of, of getting people to, to, to like you, is it perhaps a little bit more difficult maybe for, for brokers and agents and so on who are going out there and you know, looking to break those barriers, looking to find that common ground with a client. Because um, they're not always there, are they? We don't, like you said, we don't always come from the same hometown. We don't always support the same sports mm -hmm. team. So are there any sort of methods that you can perhaps put forward that, you know, the, the brokers and agents can use to sort of uh, bring clients closer? It's, it has never been easier in the course of human existence for us to connect on what we have in common because of the vast amount of information that's available via the internet. So any research you can do on your client, if you can access their Facebook page, if they're on there, if you can access Instagram and find something, uh, almost all clients are on LinkedIn. You can find out where they went to school and who they're connected to. Um, you could just do a Google search and maybe an article comes up about a, uh, a cause or a business that they support, but it requires you doing a little bit of homework. And once you do that, then you make that conscious choice to tap into that. And I'll give you an example. There's a large, extremely large insurance company that's located here in Columbus, Ohio. And I was able to get a meeting with one of their senior level executives. And she had 30 minutes on her calendar for me. And towards the end of the meeting, I said, hey, before we wrap up, uh, how do you know? And I put out a name. And, and, and she said, well, I, he's my uh, BFF, my best friend forever from, from church. And she spoke real highly of this person. And she said, how do you know him? And I said, he was my high school football coach. And we began to swap stories. And all of a sudden, this really business or this really uh, busy senior executive stretched that 30-minute meeting into an hour and 15 minutes because we found this one thing, this one person who was significant to us. And we began to share stories. And she just became very open to what I was um, putting on the table that I thought would benefit for the benefit their company. It's simple things like that that can make a world of difference in your connection with other people. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So obviously that's you've given us a two of the the six principles here i i don't want to sort of use up all of our all of our time but um yeah can you give us a, a quick overview of the others as well sure um one of the principles is called the principle of authority it's easier for us to say yes to people that we view as having superior wisdom or expertise so it's incumbent upon individuals to make sure in advance that somebody knows what their specialty is what their expertise is it gives them a reason to listen Next principle is called social proof. And social proof <clears throat> is about what others are doing. What have others said or done? What are they doing? Because human beings as social creatures, we are heavily impacted 
by what other people are thinking, how they're behaving, the actions they're taking. All of those things will will impact our thinking that, well, maybe we should be taking those actions and thinking that way. So if we can bring that into our conversation, it becomes easier for someone to say yes to us. Um, Another principle is called the principle of consistency. Consistency just says about human beings, we feel an internal psychological pressure, but also an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and do. We just naturally feel better about ourselves when our words and deeds match. And the final principle that we talk about is called scarcity, that we value things more when we believe they're rare or going away. So if you have something that's potentially rare or going away, you need to alert somebody about that and it will probably change their behavior. You know, a, a good example, Paul, since you're on the other side of the pond, uh, the Concorde, the first transatlantic flight that was approximately two hours, the Concorde ultimately shut down. Now, if everybody had been flying the Concorde, it obviously would have continued to fly and upgrade its, its planes, but it wasn't. But in the last three months, they sold out every time they flew across the Atlantic. And it was simply because people realized this is going to be one of the last flights. If I don't do it now, I'll never get the chance again. If they hadn't known that, they still would not have been filling up those planes. Yeah. Uh, but can you explain to me or, or give me an example of how we can sort of apply that sort of scarcity theory, if you want, to to insurance? Because insurance, I guess, for the most part, uh, it is a grudge purchase, isn't it? And and there mm-hmm. are many providers, there are many types of coverage available. Scarcity doesn't seem, from at least from the outside looking in, to, to apply to insurance. Well, it actually does, because scarcity is also about fear of loss, and the entire industry is built on fear of loss. And I don't say that in a negative way. It's just a reality that bad things can happen and cause financial hardship for individuals and businesses. It becomes incumbent upon the insurance agent to help a potential client or current client um, see what is actually at stake. So simply mentioning a coverage is never as good as explaining what that coverage means or even going a step further to say, this is what's at stake. If you don't have business income, for example, if you don't have business income coverage and something happens to your business and you're shut down for a period of, let's say, six months as it takes time to maybe demolish the building and rebuild and do all those things, what are you going to do if you have employees who can't go without pay for six months and take jobs somewhere else? And you start asking those questions. How will that impact your ability to get the business up and running? How much longer will it take to hire new people and train them and and really get somebody to see, wow, there's more at stake here. There's more potential loss than what I thought. Please include that quote in the coverage. And then we'll talk about it during that presentation. That's how you start incorporating scarcity. Another way might be for the, the company may offer unique coverages or packages of coverages, or they may be a specializer in a certain field which sets them apart, that nobody quite does what they do when it comes to certain types of risks or certain industries. So you have to learn how to talk about what you're offering in a way that gets that other person to know, wow, if I don't go with this particular company or this agency, I will be losing something. So find your niche is, is, a, is a message here. Yeah, your unique selling proposition is really a variation of scarcity. It is what makes you different. 
And that difference, when you talk about it in terms of what you won't get, um, here's something that people make a mistake on. We always try to tout the benefits and the gains and the savings, but studies are very clear, Paul. People are much more motivated by what they may lose as opposed to what they may gain. And simply reframing what you're talking about as far as a gain into a loss will motivate more people to take action. I, I used to counsel uh, the field salespeople at the insurance company that I worked at, State Auto. When they would go out to agents toward the end of the year and they would talk about you know, hitting certain metrics and how that would impact bonuses, I wouldn't go out and say, Paul, I just reviewed the sales numbers and you are so close to reaching inner circle. And if you get there, you're going to get an extra $50,000 of bonus. Now that's going to motivate you. It, it, absolutely. That will motivate you. But my contention would be, you'd be much more motivated by, if I were to say, Paul, I just looked at the sales numbers and you are so close to reaching inner circle. And if you don't get there, you're going to lose $50,000 of your bonus. And I want you to feel it in your gut and say, what are you talking about? Now I can talk about, well, Paul, if you reach it, your bonus is going to go up by 50000 But if you don't get there, you're going to lose that $50,000 kicker. And the studies are really clear. More people will be motivated to take action at the thought of losing versus gaining. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, Brian, as well about your role now? Because um, just explain to us what influence people does. So I work with individuals and organizations to help them incorporate this psychology into the daily activities that they do. My primary market remains insurance. And that was since I graduated from college. That was my background. I know the industry inside and out. I understand how this applies not only to selling, but underwriting, which is a lot of persuasive conversations, settling claims. That's a persuasive conversation. So that remains my target market. But I do things outside of the insurance industry. I've worked with uh, a company that sells hearing aids and pharmaceuticals and, and things like that. So really anybody who says, we think that if we are more persuasive in our advertising, our communication, our sales process, we will do better. Those are individuals and organizations that I work with. And you're an author as well. Um, you wrote Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical, uh, which if anyone checks it out, uh, the reviews are outstanding. Um, and I believe you have another book coming out in January. Is that right? Yes. Um, the second book is called Persuasive Selling for Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents. I started when I was writing... Uh, that book, I started off as more generic sales, and I just felt it was watered down and it was not going to be as beneficial as it could. And on the advice uh, of some of a good friend, I decided, you know what, the insurance industry is a big enough industry, um, and I'm going to hone in on that because I know it well. So the book looks at the eight steps of the sales process and which of these six principles are most applicable at each point throughout the sales process. I also look at um, personality styles and how to deal with different personality styles, but it is very geared toward the insurance agent uh, helping their client understand you know, what's at stake and the best coverages that they can uh, put out there for them. And again, I, I don't want you to give the book away. I'm sure you want people to buy it, but um, can you just give us um, perhaps an, uh, a little bit of insight into to one of those steps? Um, yeah. So if you are uh, prospecting, 
you know, the question becomes, why would somebody want to give you any of their time? And when you start thinking about these principles, then you think, well, um, they might want to give me some time if they know that I'm really good at what I do, that I'm an authority, that I have expertise. How can I bring that out in my in my marketing? They're probably going to be a lot more confident or at least open to talking to me if they know that I've dealt with lots of people, lots of clients, or maybe that I deal with clients who are very similar to them. And then the third thing is, am I offering something that maybe they can't get somewhere else? If I can incorporate all three of those, I've got this real expertise. I've dealt with people just like you, Paul, and what I'm offering, you're not going to be able to find somewhere else. That becomes a really compelling reason to say, I'm willing to give you 30 minutes on the phone or, or an hour in the office, because the whole point of the prospecting is, can I get you to give me some time? So the book goes into each of those, each of the eight steps of the sales process and kind of analyzes them that way and talks about the principles that would be most effective and give some examples on how you would incorporate some of that into that step of the sales process. And I, I know this is a, a huge overarching question that's probably very, very difficult to pin down, but um, if you could sort of focus in on one tip, if, if somebody has been listening to this conversation and thought, okay, great, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more about the principles of persuasion. Maybe I plan to read Brian's book in the future, but if there's one tip that you would want everybody to take away um, that you think could help boost their sales or just boost the way they approach their sales, uh, what would that be? Stop telling and start asking. Too often we tell people what to do and there's all kinds of reasons that they may not do that. But if we ask and they say yes, and, and there's a whole framework for how to ask in case they say no, and what are you gonna do when it comes to that? Um, but this all taps into the principle of consistency. And consistency is such a powerful principle because it starts from within. We just don't feel good about ourselves when we say one thing but do another. And in studies, even where people are interacting with someone that they'll probably never ever meet, once they give their word on something, they are so much more likely to actually do it. So we have to move away from telling people what to do and asking and then once they say yes, then we can feel comfortable that they are much more likely to do what we were hoping to, to do. And I'll give you a very quick example on a personal level. When my daughter was a teenager, it was not uncommon for my wife to say, Abigail, empty the dishwasher and we'd leave for work. And then she'd leave for school and we'd come home and the dishwasher wasn't empty. We might go to bed, wake up the next morning and dishwasher may not be empty. So now you can imagine how this conversation is going to go between mom and teenage daughter. Abigail, I told you to empty the dishwasher. And here come the excuses. I didn't hear you. I didn't know you wanted me to do it right away. I was just about to do it. But still, there's the friction. And it could have been avoided by simply doing this. I would have looked at her and said, Abigail, will you please empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? If she says, I can't, Dad, I'm in a hurry, then I'd say, wait a minute. Will you empty it as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? And almost every time she'd say, yeah, yeah, I will. And she would do it because she didn't want to feel bad about herself. She also didn't want to look bad in my eyes, but it started from within. I told dad I'd do it. I don't want to feel bad about myself because I didn't do it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I was, it brings me neatly to, to my next point because I was going to say a lot of these tips, I'm assuming, um, 
apply to to regular life too, don't they? Um, and and I know that you've you know you've got an amazing background not only in terms of of sales and work, but I mean you've been a a bodybuilder, you run marathons, you've got a a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. Um, how much of these principles are you applying to your daily life? Oh, all the time. Because if you think about it, Paul, um, think about all the times in the course of a day you interact with somebody and you want them to do something. That's a persuasive communication. Uh, one study cited by Dan Pink in his book, To Sell as Human, they surveyed more than 7,000 American business workers who were not in sales. And they asked them to estimate how much of your day do you spend trying to influence, persuade, or convince people to do things not related to making a sale? And the average that came back was 40%. You think about that, that means a typical worker, at least here in the United States, estimates they're using the skill of influence more than three hours a day because of all the time that we're sending an email and asking somebody to do something or return something, or we make that phone call or we have that conversation. Um, we use this skill far more than people realize. So all of the things that we're talking about here to help businesses, absolutely, they help at home. And that's why I always say, you, you learn what these principles are, you're going to enjoy more professional success and personal happiness. Because I've found at home, the more people say yes, and with less friction, tends to be peaceful and happy. And, and I've got to ask Brian because you do have this, you know, incredible schedule. And like I say, you you do so much in your personal life as well. Do you ever find time to rest? <laughs> I, I do. I, I I'm up super early every day. You know, I'm usually up by five a.m. and I do all my working out and things early in the morning. And and then uh, I, I do go to bed kind of early because I'm tired and I sleep well. That's good. <laughs> So, Brian, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'm sure it's been quite inspirational for a lot of people, actually. Um, if people do want to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, uh, how can they find you? Okay, a couple ways. LinkedIn. So if you reach out to me on LinkedIn and you don't put a message that, hey, I heard you on Paul's podcast, I guarantee that I will send you a, a message back to say, how did you find me? I like to understand why people are reaching out. And I think in doing that, it makes social media social gives us a little opportunity to interact as, as we get connected. The second way would be on my website, which is influencepeople.biz. Um, there you'll find email, phone number. If you needed to reach out to me, there's a contact form too. And there's all kinds of free information there, uh, podcasts, videos, um, <clears throat> been blogging for more than a dozen years. So tremendous amount of free resources and also links to my current book and eventually the second book. Excellent. Uh, Brian, I think you've you know given us a lot to take away today. Thank you very, very much for your time. Um, to everybody listening, I'm Paul Lucas. This is IB Talk, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.